a death bed a death bed what would you expect to hear from someone who is on his deathbed? What kind of words that person would utter? I believe that the last words of a dying person are most likely empty from hypocrisy and they reflect realities within the dying person's heart and mind. And sometimes these words summarize the person's view of the life he lived. As an example, the 19th century French statesman Charles Talleyrand wrote the following word on a piece of paper and laid it on a nightstand near his bed the night before he died. This is what he wrote, quote, Behold! Eighty-three years passed away. What care, what agitation, what anxieties, what ill will, what sad complications, and all without other results except great fatigue of mind and body and a profound sentiment of discouragement with regard to the future and of disquiet with regard to the past, end quote. These were the words of a dying man. What do you see? What do you observe? These words are filled with grief and sadness and darkness and anxiety, and they're empty from any kind of hope. These were the words of a man who was leaving this life, who was leaving this earth, but Paul's words were also words of a dying man. They were the words of a, of a man who was about to be beheaded. But what do you see in Paul's words? In the words of Paul in verses 6 through 8, we can perceive that the, these words, they reflect someone who has hope, someone who is encouraged. But the question is, how could someone who is in a dreadful situation like this or in a fearful situation like this, who needs encouragement, is the one who encourages others? How could someone who is facing execution show boldness instead of fear? The answer is perspective. Sometimes in life, in order to see better, we have to adjust our perspective. Just like eyeglasses, but it seems to me that you all have good eyesight, only a handful who wear glasses. But I believe that when you put on the lens or the right lens, the view is way much better. Acts 20 Verse 24 was the lens that governed Paul's life. Paul said the following words to the elders in Ephesus before leaving the city. In these following words that I'm about to read, these words, they summarize Paul's worldview. This is the lens through which Paul lived his life. This is what he said to them. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. 
so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Paul lived for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I have to stop now for a moment and ask a crucial question, a vital question. What is the gospel? What is the message of the gospel? The message of the gospel simply is this, that God is a holy God. And we are by nature, we are born sinners. And there is a wall between us and God. And a sinner cannot stand before God because God does not tolerate sin. And sin is anything that it is not in conformity with God's holy and perfect character. And because of sin, the relationship between God and man is broken. The situation is hopeless. But the gospel is a message of hope. That's the word, the word evangelion. It's the, it means the good news. This is the gospel. The gospel brings good news. By sending Christ to live on earth, being born a virgin birth, and through his perfect life he lived, through his substitutionary death, through his resurrection on the third day, his ascension, and now sitting at the right hand of the Father, there is hope for anyone who turns from his sin in faith in the person and the work of Christ Jesus. And Jesus himself says, whoever believes in me shall live. And he who will not, listen to this, this is the words of Jesus, the wrath of God abides and remains on him. But this is what the message of the gospel brings. It brings a message of hope. And Paul lived that gospel-driven life. Paul lived to proclaim this truth. The gospel was for Paul the source of his life, the source of his encouragement, the source of his strength, and the source of his boldness. But remember that Paul was about to die. And these words were his last will and testament. Paul wanted to hand over to Timothy the mission of guarding and proclaiming the gospel no matter what. And if I would summarize 2 Timothy in one single sentence, in one phrase, that Paul wanted to say to Timothy, it would be this. Timothy, young man, I have loved the gospel more than my own life. Do the same by the grace of God. That is the gospel-driven life. And this morning, we are going to look at Three important truths that will help us understand the gospel-driven life. In verse 6, we are going to look at the cost of the gospel-driven life. And in verse 7, we are going to look at the characteristics of the gospel-driven life. 
and verse 8, we're going to conclude with the confidence of the gospel-driven life. The cost, the characteristics, and the confidence. If you have attended Mike Riccardi's sermon today, all his seven points, they started with a C. I don't know if today is the C day or not. So, cost, characteristics, and confidence. Let's now look at the cost of the gospel-driven life. But before we investigate the cost of the gospel-driven life in verse 6, let's take a quick look at the context of chapter 4. Chapter 4 begins uh, with Paul's finals, final charges to young Timothy. And in verse 1 of chapter 4, four Paul said to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready, in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. What is Paul saying to Timothy here? Paul is urging the young man to take advantage from every opportunity to preach sound doctrinal truth. And Paul provides two reasons for his charge to Timothy. The first two reasons are in verse 3 and 4, and the, the first reason in verse 3 and 4, and the second in verse 6. In verse 3 and 4, Paul urges Timothy to unceasingly preach the gospel and confront false teachers and teach them the false teaching and to continually preach sound doctrine. And in verse 3, Paul explains why. As it says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. What do they want then? but wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myth. I think you would all agree with me that we live in a day and age when Common sense, for some, or for many, is not making sense. The he wants to be called a she. And the she wants to be called a he. And you are, if you are still undecisive, we will find a category to fit you in. <laughs> LGBTQT movement is just uh, falls under the umbrella of Tolerance and love. Close to where I live, there is a church that is called Elevation Church. I don't know what's the elevation inside, 4,000 feet, 8,000 feet inside of this church. I don't know exactly, but the purpose of that church is when you go inside, they make you feel good. Good about yourself. Rodney was teaching us a couple of days ago about that lie that says, follow your heart. Whoa. But all of these are just lies. And it is not likely that lies convict of sin or drive sinner to repentance. 
And people who live in sin, they want to listen what justifies their sins. But the true gospel confronts sins. And the gospel is a message that you either love and embrace wholeheartedly or you hate and reject and you don't want to listen to. That's the first reason Paul charges Timothy to preach the gospel to oppose false teaching and teachers. And in verse 5, Paul explained to Timothy how to handle the charge by saying to him, But you, Timothy, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of the evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So Timothy's mission was to preach and teach and proclaim the truth. But Paul was reminding Timothy of something else. He was telling to Timothy, Timothy, I want you to know that preaching the gospel and hardships are inseparable. It's a package. For this reason, he said to him, endure hardships. But the urgency of the charge is not only because false teachers, but, but there is also another reason, which we find in verse 6. And the reason is, Paul says to Timothy, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Paul announces to Timothy some important news. Some important news about his personal condition that was about to change. Paul knew that his end was coming soon. And he wanted to pass on the baton to Timothy. And Timothy had to take over and fill the space created because of Paul's departure. Paul will not be there anymore to help the young man because he was about to die. And Paul, in verse 6, he uses two metaphors to describe his anticipated death. First, by comparing his life to a drink offering. He said, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Paul borrows uh, these words from the Old Testament sacrificial system. And in specific, from the book of Numbers, chapters 27 and verse 8. And this, the picture is of a drink offering. And in that case, it was wine that was poured on a lamb sacrifice just before it was burned on the altar. And the imagery of wine being poured out suggests a figurative description of death as the pouring out of blood. But Paul here is describing his whole life of service and devotion culminating in his death as a sacrificial pouring out to the Lord. For Paul, the price of the gospel-driven life that he lived was his own life. Moving to the second metaphor, Paul provides further details. He writes to Timothy that my, my, the time of my departure has come. And the word departure in the original means loosing or releasing something. And the word was sometimes used to picture the departure of a ship from the harbor by lifting its anchor. Paul, by using these two metaphors, 
he was saying that he, his departure from life was not distant far. Paul's death was imminent. Paul's words about his departure actually would communicate to Timothy that he would not be able to count on Paul's presence or encouragement any longer. Timothy would be alone. That shared leadership was coming to an end. And Timothy must take charge. However, even if Timothy feels that he would be alone in all of this, Paul wants to encourage the young man that though he is alone, he is not alone. One of my favorite soccer teams is Liverpool. It's an English team. Sometimes Liverpool do well, and sometimes not. Sometimes they just first of the league, and sometimes seventh, eighth, ninth. And this is discouraging. If you are a fan, it's discouraging. However, even if they are seventh, eighth in the league, and this is their last game, you'll always find the stadium filled with crowd and fans of Liverpool. And few minutes before the game begins, always, always, all the, fan, the fans sing together a song to their, to their team. And the title of this song is, You Will Never Walk Alone. This is what Paul is saying to Timothy. Timothy, I am leaving you. But remember that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. You have the scripture. And you have the grace of God. Be encouraged and be strengthened by the grace of God. If you have God and if you have your, his word, you have everything. So Paul was leaving this life, and there was a cause that he paid that was his own life. But this final departure is the culmination of Paul's long-held dream that he had earlier expressed to the church in Philippi, in Philippians 1:21, when he said to them, I desire to depart and be with Paul paid a price for his gospel-driven life. And the price was his own life. Paul was called to martyrdom. Maybe most of us and, and will not be called to martyrdom. However, as Christians, we are all called to self-denial. We have been bought with a price. We no longer belong to ourselves. We belong to a different master. We are called to make much. We are not called to make much of ourselves, but we are called to make much of Christ. And even our Lord Jesus said to his disciples and to the crowd in Luke 9:23, "If anyone wishes to come after me, he must." Deny himself. 
and take up his cross daily and follow me. And to deny oneself means just the willingness to, to let go of selfish desires and earthly security. Self is no longer in charge. God is. Spurgeon, in, when he was concluding one of his sermons, he said this, these words to the congregation. Quote, I have now concentrated all my prayers into one, and that one prayer is this, that I may die to self and live entirely to him. End quote. So the gospel-driven life is a life that aims to make more of Christ every day. If, if you are a dad, if you are a mom, if you are a boss, if you are an employee, if you are a student, if you are single, if you are dating, if you are sick, if you are in good health, if you live in abundance, or if you are going through different or difficult circumstances, all of us need to ask ourselves this question this morning. Am I making of Christ more and more every day, or am I making just myself? But the other question that is tied to this is, do I realize that in the gospel, in the gospel, I have all what I need to make more of Christ every day? Brothers and sisters, in the gospel, there is mercy. In the gospel, there is forgiveness. In the gospel, there is deliverance. In the gospel, there is restoration. In the gospel, in the gospel there is hope so that each and every one of us can wake up every morning with hope to make more and more of Christ. There is a cost for the gospel-driven life, but the gain is way greater for the best is yet to come. This leads us to the second point, which is the characteristics of the gospel-driven life. In verse 7, Paul writes, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race or the course. I have kept the faith. In the original language, the wording is different. And a word-to-word word -word translation of this verse is something like this. The good fight I have fought. The race I have finished. The faith I have kept. And the reason for placing uh, the object first is life. And that it is, it's a fight, and it's a race, and it's a faith to keep. And in verse 7, Paul provides three athletic imageries that people in the first century were familiar with to explain to Timothy the characteristics of the gospel-driven life. First, it is a fight to fight. And among the Athletic events suggested as being referred to in this metaphor is wrestling. Wrestling is a sport that requires stamina and it requires persistence. It is a fight. And Paul says, I have fought the good fight. And the, Paul used the, the Greek noun agon and the verb agonizomai for fight and fighting, and from which we, we get the English word agony. The words reflect the motif of laborious striving. And Paul uses this word to describe his life and ministry in terms of contest. So despite oppositions, persecution, hardships, 
and trials which Paul had gone through because of the gospel, he was determined to fight the good fight until the very end. But note, notice that Paul said that the fight is what? How he described it. A good fight. What does that mean? Good means noble and worthy and precious. But why such description? Because Paul understood that a life centered around Christ is the most precious and meaningful life one can live. And to live for Christ is the most thing that you can do because if you live for Christ, you live for God. And what is the chief end of man? To enjoy God and to glorify Him or to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. In his first imprisonment, Paul expressed this clearly when he wrote in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ. For Paul to live for Christ was a fight he lived every day. That was the good fight that Paul pursued, and we are all called to pursue the same. The gospel-driven life is a relentless endeavor to magnify Christ and share Christ with others. Let's look at the second characteristic of the gospel-driven life. It's not only finish, a race to finish. Paul in verse 6 says, I finished the race. The race. And athletes um, who, who, who race submit to various kind of uh, disciplines and diets uh, to be able to race. Sometimes they spend days and months, and if you're heading to the Olympics, then you will spend years of intense training. But their goal is not only to enter the race, but to get to the finish line. And Paul, like a runner, uh, he endured to get to the finish line. Paul explained to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 through 11, he said, now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such him and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. So the obstacles which Paul faced in his race did not hinder him from finishing the race and from finishing the race well, and, and remember that the bumps that we face in life are, are meant to make our faith stronger. So endurance is the key point of this race metaphor. And endurance is an attitude of perseverance that controls discouragement under pressing and trying circumstances to accomplish the task that is ahead of us. In other words, Paul did not quit. He did not quit. Look how the author of Hebrews exhorts his audience, and even us this morning, to look at Christ as an example of endurance. In Hebrews 12, Verses 1 through 3, the author of Hebrews says, 
let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which easily entangle us, entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that it is set before us. How? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, of faith who for the joy that set before him endured the at the right hand of the throne of God. What an encouragement that, that the race we run is, is not our own. We did not select the course of our life. It is God who make, make it out before us. And we should be running the race for Christ, not for ourselves. And we must always keep him in sight. And remember this, that in the Christian race that we run, we do not run alone. We do not run as individuals. We run it together. So when someone stumble, stumbles, we stop. We help him. We go together to the finish line. One of the most mystery of the Olympics, when that young man, a runner, stumbles and all his fans, they reach to the finish line and he is on the ground. And there you go. His dad, from the crowds, he leaves the crowds, he goes to his son, he lifts him up, he takes him to the finish line. This is endurance. This is the Christian life. We are not just competing with one another. We just complete one another. We encourage one another to finish the race and to finish the race well. So, I want you to encourage. I want to encourage each and every one of us. Just like someone came to me one day and he said to me, Sharif, remember this. It is this morning. Remember, it is always too soon to quit. And I encourage you also to pray what I'm about to say now every day. Pray to the Lord that you would finish well. It's a prayer that we need to pray every day. Lord, help me to finish my course well. The third point, not only the gospel-driven life is a fight to fight and a race to finish, but it is also a faith to keep. To keep means to preserve or to watch over something. And the word faith can be interpreted into two different ways here. If faith is interpreted as doctrine, then what Paul is saying here is that he has preserved the Christian teaching or the Christian message and kept it interpreted as trust, that is, uh, as something entrusted to someone, then Paul here is speaking about faithfulness. He is saying that he has been faithful to this ministry that has been entrusted to him. But from the context of 2 Timothy and that chapter, most likely the word faith here refers to one's faithfulness to the task given to him. And faithfulness means 
to be committed to a given task. It implies a strong sense of duty. And during his life, Paul wanted to bring to completion the ministry he received from our Lord Jesus. Paul was saved by the gospel. He lived for the gospel and died because of the gospel. He was faithful. And in the Christian life, a faithful person is someone who lives a loyal and devoted life to his master, Jesus Christ. But we also need to know that faithfulness knows no difference between small and big duties. In other words, we do not have to be Paul. Maybe you are a businessman, you are an entrepreneur, you work at a coffee shop, you just stay home mom, you are a nurse. Whatever God has called you to be here or there, or whatever God has called you to do, big or small, be faithful to the task and do this task for the glory of Christ. Live the gospel, share the gospel, and do not be ashamed of the gospel. And saying to each and every one of us, well done, you faithful servant. So the gospel-driven life is a life of faithfulness until the last breath. Now let's look at our final point in verse 8, which is the confidence of the gospel-driven life. To have confidence is to have a firm and unwavering trust. What was Paul's confidence? In 2 Timothy 4, verse 8, Paul writes to Timothy, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to... First, we can note, notice here that Paul is confident of being rewarded by saying there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Paul once again returns to the athletic metaphor and this time focusing on the price of victory. Every athlete back in Paul's day was looking forward to a prize. And back in the first century, the athlete who wins, he was looking forward to a crown that would be given to him. These crowns, they were made of beautiful flowers, uh, tree leaves, and they were beautiful crowns, but they were perishable. But Paul was looking forward with confidence to him that he calls a crown of righteousness. What is the crown of righteousness? The, the crown may refer to either a reward for righteous life of perseverance in the faith or the final righteous state of believers granted to them by God when they are in the Lord's presence. But again, from the athletic imageries in the previous verse and in the context of that verse, the crown of righteousness seems to be the reward for the person who faithfully 
perseveres for the sake of Christ. And Paul was confident that his life will not end in failure. He was confident that his life will not end in shame, but in victory and glory. Paul was confident that the crown of righteousness will be awarded to him on that day by our Lord Jesus Christ himself. And that day refers to the day when the believers will stand before Christ, before the judgment seat of Christ, to be rewarded by Christ, the righteous judge. He sees everything and he knows everything. And perhaps there is an implication here that Emperor Nero, the unrighteous earthly judge, had condemned the apostle to death. But in the end, however, the righteous judge, Jesus Christ, would openly acclaim and honor Paul. And Paul knew that even... But we also need to know that Paul's confidence about the crown of righteousness is built on his confidence of, of the appearing of Christ. And the appearing of Christ refers to Christ's return. And Paul ends his encouragement to the young man, Timothy, on a strongly eschatological note. Paul looks forward to the future. The coming of Christ encouraged Paul to seek to live righteously and serve faithfully every day he lived. But Paul also declares that Christ will grant the crown not only to him, but also to all who love his appearing. And the one who love his appearing are the believers who set their lives and hearts on the return. It's moving, moving moments for me. I don't know about you, but I like going to airports. Just I, I, I travel a lot, but one of the most moving uh, moments to me when I go to the airport and I am waiting for someone that I, that I love. And they are coming out from inside the airport and even if there are thousands of people that are coming out, but you know how to find your beloved. And when both of you have an eye contact, there's a big smile on your face because you are waiting for him. And he is waiting for us as well. What an encouragement for us this morning. And what, what, what an encouragement to Timothy first in the faith of Paul's departure for, for him to embrace and pass on and an encouragement for us as well. And hoping in the future return of Jesus is foundational for our perseverance right here, right now. And the confidence of in Christ's return should motivate us every day just to redeem the time and to live a life that pleases the Lord. It should motivate us to, to press on and seek to live the gospel-driven life. As I conclude this message, 
Brothers and sisters, we're, we're still enjoying the freedom to worship in the United States. And praise the Lord for that. But we are in a day and age now you cannot make a plan for five years. Just You can make a plan for one week now, just, which is okay. But you cannot make a plan for five years. And we see what is coming. But this is an encouraging message for us to prepare us for what is coming. And let not fear or discouragement or persecution hold us from the task that is given to us. And let us remember also this morning that in the Christian race, we run together that race. We run the same race of endurance and faithfulness to the Lord. And the church is the place where we should practice the one another. Because we run together that race. Finish well. Not everyone who started well finished well. But we want to encourage one another to finish well. And if you are a Christian, we have to rejoice that because our lives belong to Christ. He owns it all. And we need to be reminded that he will hold us fast until he takes us home. I conclude my message with one question that I will leave with you. And this question, each and every one of us should think about it. Ask yourself today, do I love the gospel of Jesus Christ more? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scripture. We thank you that you did not leave us alone in this dark world. We thank you that you have given us the light in your word. We thank you that your word is truth. We thank you for Christ because in him we have hope and we can have hope every moment in our life. Lord, help us this morning just to be shaped by the gospel. Help us to put first things first. Help us to get rid of all the worldly things. We thank you for all the goodness that you have bestowed upon us and we enjoy it. But help us to have a Christ-centered life. Help us to live a gospel-driven life. Just like Paul, just like Timothy, we thank you for your spirit that help us to live this kind of life. Lord, I pray as well that we would remember that in our Christian life, we run the race together. Help us to seek for the lost and help us to be encouraging our brothers and sisters in Christ and help us all this morning to fix our eyes on Jesus. We thank you for your grace and we thank you for your mercy. 
In your son's name I pray, amen.